Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rick Baldos, who is an assistant professor in sociology at Oberlin College. Today, we will discuss Dr. Baldos's book, The Third Asiatic Invasion, Empire and Migration in Filipino America, 1898 to 1946, which was published by New York University Press in 2011 to win book awards from the American Sociological Association and the American Library Association. The Third Asiatic Invasion investigates the complex relationship between the U.S. and Filipinos, who, unlike other Asian American groups, were colonial subjects of the American empire and therefore were granted more rights and were defined as national subjects. At the same time, these Filipinos and Filipinas were still perceived as aliens and were characterized as sexually and morally deviant. Baldos considers how American imperial ascendancy affected the identity of the Filipino and Filipino migrants in relation to Puerto Rican, Mexican, and Chinese migrants as well. Rick, I want to welcome you to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by describing the intellectual trajectory that brought you to write The the Third Asiatic Invasion. Yeah, um, I guess like many uh, first books, it grew out of a, a dissertation. Uh, but the topic itself, uh, I came to somewhat uh, by happenstance. Uh, when I went to graduate school, uh, I was interested in sort of U.S. foreign policy and questions of sort of economic development or underdevelopment in the third world and was not particularly interested in sort of domestic race relations or Filipino-American uh, history. And um, probably my second or third year of graduate school, I took a seminar on race relations, Mm. and the professor encouraged me to write something about Filipino-Americans, knowing that I was Filipino-American. And I was not necessarily enthusiastic, but I didn't necessarily oppose the idea, so I ended up uh, writing a seminar paper, um, and I was sort of ambivalent about the topic insofar as um, I grew up in a Filipino community in eastern Washington state Mm. on the Yakima Indian Reservation, Mm. and uh, it's a very poor community, very racially stigmatized community, both the Filipino population and the Native American population. And in a lot of ways, um, it was a sort of history that I was trying to get away from. Growing up poor and racially stigmatized wasn't something I was enthusiastic about. It was something I sort of wanted to put Mm. in the rearview mirror. But at the same time, I was sort of intrigued, and I was intrigued for a couple of reasons. One was, uh, and this would have been, I guess, the late 90s when I first started working on this project that became my dissertation, that there was so little written about Filipino-Americans at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And by little, I mean there was almost nothing when I went to my library uh, you know, there's five or six books maybe, and many of them were quite old. And you know, one was a literary scholar, and another was a kind of demographer. So there wasn't a lot of uh, material yet, and that made uh, the initial part of the project sort of 
difficult and frustrating because there wasn't a whole lot of materials to draw on. Uh, and then the second thing that sort of motivated me to, to pursue it was um, a sort of, I guess, loyalty to telling uh, the sort of story of a community and a people that I sort of grew up with. My grandparents had migrated from the Philippines to the U.S. in the late 1920s, mm-hmm. and they grew up, you know, in a sort of, I guess, oral history kind of tradition, you know, hearing these kind of crazy stories about race riots and uh, moral panics about sexuality and um, criminality. And I felt like no one had really told that story mm-hmm. uh, and that it was a story worth telling. Uh, and then I guess, you know, the rest is history. Um, became a dissertation that was somewhat, you know, mediocre. Uh, and again, partly because there wasn't a whole lot of material that uh, I found at the time. But as mm-hmm. uh, I left graduate school, a whole kind of new literature emerged on sort of legal history of Asian Americans and sort of new literature about um, taxi dance halls and interracial sexuality that helped me to kind of develop and uh, advance the project in ways that were um, important and generative. Uh, and that eventually became the book. Oh, we're, uh, after uh, graduate school, did, so this new kind of literature started to expand. Because uh, I'm thinking of, like, uh, what's his name, Frank Cordova, uh, Dorothy and Frank Cordova, and, and their kind of works on Filipino America in the Northwest. Uh, but they don't really talk that mm-hmm. much about um, uh, the violence, I guess, that takes place. Uh, and a lot of the race rights that you talk about in the book, it was, it was the first time I had heard of some of them. Um, and mm-hmm. at the same time, it, it, I, I was wondering, like, if if uh, it was just the, the discourse that changed, or was it also the uh, the willingness of people to talk about these things, uh, or the ar- something in the archives, or something became available uh, that also allowed this to expand? Um, yeah, I think it was mostly, you know, I guess the commitment to trying to uncover on Earth this kind of material which required. Um, less the sort of, you know, community history of sort of, you know, transmitting stories from generation to generation, which I think the Cordova tradition comes out of into really digging around into the newspapers and public records from this period, and we're talking here about the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And, um, you know, it's a pretty uh, laborious project in the sense we're talking about, I don't know, I must have looked at microfilm of probably 30 40 different newspapers over, you know, maybe 10 year span. So, I mean, you just sort of dig around, you know, every day's paper, you know, 365 days a year trying to find some mention of uh, Filipinos. And I was somewhat surprised by, you know, how much I did find. Mm-hmm. Right? So in the book I talk about, you know, we're talking between anywhere from 50 to 75 different, you know, acts of collective violence against Filipinos during this period. So it was really a matter of, you know, it was an issue that I knew or I felt was important. Uh, so I just had to really grind it out to find uh, these you know, local newspaper stories about different uh, acts of violence and different campaigns to run Filipinos out of these communities. And, um, I, you know, some scholars just it wasn't, I guess, a concern of theirs or it wasn't a key interest, so they didn't spend as much time looking at this stuff. Let's uh, jump right into the the title of the book, The Third Asiatic Invasion. Uh, I, this is the first time I also heard that term, too. Uh, but what does that term mean? Why is it important as a kind of place to start off with for the book? 
Right. So the term third Asiatic invasion was a, a sort of rhetorical device used by uh, nativist leaders in the late 1920s and early 1930s, uh, and it was an effort uh, to, I guess, draw on earlier sort of um, racial animus towards the Chinese and Japanese with the first and second Asiatic invasions, mm. hoping to um, mobilize public support for Filipino exclusion. And as we you know, we'll talk more about, I think, in, as we go into the interview, um, the case of Filipinos was a lot different than Filip- mm. uh, than uh, Chinese or Japanese because the Filipinos were U.S. colonial subjects. Um, but again, this was a sort of rhetorical device to sort of link Filipino immigration to the uh, previous uh, animus directed towards uh, Chinese and Japanese. Um, and it wasn't successful as they had hoped. I mean, it was successful, I think, in sort of mm. as a rallying cry, but it didn't actually get the kind of support they needed to enact uh, exclusionary legislation, at least not uh, in a direct way. So what is it, like, how did the yeah, state did. define that term, U.S. national? Um, who else was considered a U.S. national at the time? Uh, you know, what is that, how did uh, Filipino-Americans also identify with that term? Right. So that's an important question. That's at the, the you know, one of the key uh, arguments of the book is to try to uh, unpack and uh, figure out exactly what this sort of new species of political subject known as the U.S. national was. So in the debates over whether or not the United States should uh, annex the Philippines, um, the pro-imperialist, you know, argued that um, this was a sort of duty of the United States to uplift and civilize the backwards peoples of the world, including Filipinos. Uh, So there's kind of paternalistic racism that sort of undergirded um, their uh, agenda. And on the other side, with the anti-imperialist, a vocal block of them uh, argued that um, annexing the Philippines was a terrible idea because uh, it would automatically trigger the collective naturalization uh, of uh, all the residents of the Philippines. In other words, um, by annexing the Philippines, all residents of the Philippines would become U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. and this was deemed to be a very scary proposition. Um, So obviously the imperialists win this debate. The U.S. does annex the Philippines, uh, but the political status of Filipinos remains uh, unresolved, uh, and... um, to a certain extent, uh, Congress lets uh, the federal court system figure out what exactly the status of Filipinos will be. Um, in in a series of cases known as the Insular Cases, um, courts say that um, the Filipinos had not been collectively naturalized, right? they were not U.S. citizens by virtue of annexation, uh, but neither were they aliens. So they were something in between. They were neither fully domestic nor were they fully foreign. Um, and the Supreme Court doesn't use the term nationals, but a, a legal scholar uh, who's trying to explain what the Supreme Court did later uh, uses the term national, and he sort of borrows from, I think, French legal theory, drawing mm. uh, on their own colonial history, uh, to describe you know, what we have here are nationals, right? And this would describe both Filipinos, Puerto Ricans, uh, as well as the residents of Guam. Mm. Um, and it sort of highlights this history of the sort of contested legal status of Filipinos, highlights the ad hoc character of 
the U.S. Imperial Project. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's decided that Filipinos are U.S. nationals, but no one really clarifies what does that mean. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just give someone a name that doesn't tell us very much about, you know, what rights do they have, what obligations do they have to the national state. Uh, and this is a question that gets played out over the next couple of decades uh, in more court cases. One of the most, uh, I guess, interesting uh, ways in which this question gets deliberated is through the question of whether Filipinos are eligible for naturalized citizenship in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right? So. The earlier question I talked about, the collective naturalization, that was, are they, is every resident of the Philippines automatically a U.S. citizen? Right? And the Supreme Court says, no, that's not the case. Congress gets to decide the political status uh, of Filipinos, uh, but they don't really address the question of, what about Filipinos who migrate to the U.S.? Are they eligible to apply for U.S. Uh, naturalization? Um, so Filipinos who end up migrating to the U.S. think, that they probably are, right? They owe allegiance to the U.S., um, they're a colony of the U.S., right? They're the political subjects of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a number of Filipinos start applying for U.S. citizenship, uh, and the courts offer very conflicting answers on their eligibility. Some courts, I mean, some judges say, yes, they are eligible. Other courts say, no, they are not, you know, by virtue of their racial uh, sort of classification, right? They're not white, they're not black, therefore um, they can't become U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, another way in which this question of kind of what it means to be a U.S. national is salient is in the question or the debates about um, alien land laws, right? So when we think about the title of the, that set of statutory prohibitions, right? It, they were aimed at barring uh, Asian aliens from owning land in the U.S., um, but Filipinos were not aliens, right? They're nationals, right? So mm-hmm. do those laws apply to them? And again, this gets sort of hashed out in the courts over many years with all kinds of conflicting rulings from different uh, officials about whether the laws did apply or did not apply to them, right? So one of the sort of recurring themes throughout the book is the sort of uh, uncertainty and sort of shifting uh, definitions of where Filipinos fit into the U.S. polity and uh, a lot of the book also looks at how Filipinos tried to exploit kind of the uncertainty about their uh, nationality and or their uh, racial classification to challenge exclusionary laws and uh, to sort of carve out a niche for themselves in American society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it strikes me that uh, maybe we should go back a little bit to just the overseas expansion into the Philippines in the first place. Mm-hmm. I know it's like you know, public sure. discourse still has a very hard time dealing with this, or even mentioning this. Like it, it seems very ad- uh, effectively suffocated, this whole tale of uh, you know expansion into the Philippines, colonization of the Philippines, the Filipino-American War. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a curious tale, too, because it came after so many other Western empires had done a lot of overseas expansion. Um, so I'm just curious if we could explain for the audience uh, what exactly happened there, I guess, how it compares to other uh, uh, empires. And I'm also curious how uh, this term U.S. national, was it just kind of created out of nowhere? Or did it also was it also linked to past empires that um, in the insular cases, did they just like, like, did they base what they had on on other empires, or were they just kind of making it up as they went along? Um, it's a little of both things. There was a certain amount of making it up as we went along, meaning U.S. Uh, lawmakers. Um, 
the guy who invented the term is a guy named Frederick Colbert, who was a, uh, I think he was a Columbia Law School professor, um, did draw on sort of French colonial history, right? They had a term, they used the term nationals to describe their own colonial subjects. So in that sense, um, it was sort of borrowed um, mm-hmm. from French colonial uh, law. Um, in terms of the the question of sort of the U.S. sort of intervention in the Philippines, um, the Spanish-American War was, um, uh, I guess, the first effort to really extend U.S. Uh, empire overseas, uh, and the Philippines was, you know, certainly the farthest flung um, territory that would be part of uh, the bounty of that war hmm. for the United States. Um, one of the things I focus on the book is the ways in which um, these sort of debates about um, sort of racial makeup of the Filipino population and their sort of political aspirations was uh, played out over the early decades of U.S. colonial rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a, a section in early on the book where I talk about um, sort of U.S. Uh, sort of the colonial population surveys in the U.S., looking at how um, these uh, surveys function to sort of uh, classify and describe uh, the sort of racial uh, backwardness of the Filipino population, which was then cited by U.S. lawmakers as uh, grounds to denying the Philippines independence, right, because they were too mm-hmm. racially backwards to take care of themselves. Uh, and sort of related to that, uh, the U.S. colonial authorities sponsored a series of sort of traveling exhibitions of, of uh, Filipinos to the U.S. that were um, displayed at a variety of sort of world fairs and international expositions that, again, reinforced this notion that uh, not only were Filipinos uh, incapable of governing themselves, but this argument that Filipinos might be eligible for U.S. naturalization was uh, completely um, nuts in their, from their point of view, mm-hmm. because look how backwards these people are. And so this question of whether or not they should be eligible for naturalization should be answered just by looking at them. Like these people are not sort of, do not have the raw material to make uh, sort of rational U.S. citizens. These people are a wholly different population, unlike the Native Americans. So this question of whether or not mm-hmm. they should be eligible for U.S. citizenship is sort of answered by um, these exhibitions that show them to be uncivilized and backwards and mm-hmm. wholly kind of un- undeserving of American sort of political membership. Mm. So they were compared to Native Americans, particularly as you know, one governable race and then one one ungovernable or one who could not establish a self-government. Uh, I, I wanna, exactly. Right. It's interesting. Uh, and one of the, the comparisons you make between Filipinos uh, and Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and other Latin Americans is, is really fascinating in the book, um, partially because, you're, as you said in the beginning, they don't really fit in as well with the Chinese and Japanese experiences, though they are seen as the third Asiatic uh, invasion. Um, I'm curious what led you to, to draw those comparisons more than uh, the more typical like, Asian American group comparisons that we would get and, and how how that helps change the perspective of Filipino Americans? Yeah, I think in the case of uh, Puerto Rico, right, they were, you know, Puerto Rico and, and uh, the Philippines were the two most sort of uh, contested mm-hmm. uh, territories. 
and at least very early on, and we're talking about the first decade of U.S. colonial rule, their fates were seen as uh, linked. Hmm. Um, so it was actually a significant push uh, after Puerto Rico's annex to actually incorporate them, uh, incorporate Puerto Ricans as U.S. citizens. Right? There was significant support in Congress for that. There was sort of long-standing kind of economic sort of relationships between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, in particular in the, the sugar industry. Um, but the fear amongst other folks in Congress is that if you gave uh, Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship, then you'd have to do the same thing for Filipinos, mm, right? Yeah. So um, this sort of campaign to grant um, Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship is sort of put on hold until the Philippine question can be settled, right? The aim is ultimately to sort of decouple the two territories and you know, treat them on a case-by-case basis. Uh, in 1917, Puerto Ricans are uh, sort of granted U.S. citizenship, not necessarily <laughs> with their consent, but that's what happens. Yeah. And in the case of the Philippines, uh, it's determined that um, they won't be given U.S. citizenship because someday they'll be independent. We just don't know when, right? Mm. It may be 500 years, but um, because, you know, Puerto Ricans someday will become U.S. citizens or because Puerto Rico will someday be incorporated into the U.S., they should be given uh, citizenship, right? The U.S. will never give up Puerto Rico. We hear this repeatedly in these sort of congressional debates. Uh, in the case of the Philippines, um, we will get rid of them at some point. We just mm. don't know when. Why, why would in they... In the case of Mexicans... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I'm just curious why why they would not want to give up Puerto Rico at that time. Was, it there, was there a racialization um, or like, think... difference? I, no, yeah, it was de- definitely different, right? So you had a lot of uh, sort of political leaders in Congress saying, well, the population is sort of Spanish, meaning it's sort of quasi-European, uh, therefore they're more assimilable, and, you know, there's some uh, sort of people of African descent, but not people of African descent in the U.S. have U.S. citizenship, so that somehow Puerto Ricans are more like us, meaning Americans, than um, Filipinos. Uh, and again, the economic sort of relationships with Puerto Rico were much more uh, dense and sort of long-standing, right? So Puerto Rico had a very developed sugar industry. Sugar, you know, at the sort of late 19th and early 20th century, was a commodity, you know, almost like oil is today, right? A highly coveted commodity. Um, and the idea that the U.S. would control the Puerto Rican sugar industry was, you know, seen mm-hmm. as a very inviting uh, thing uh, in. The Philippines, you don't really have a very developed sugar industry. Right? It's really behind the times. It's really scattered. Um, and just the economic relationship with the Philippines are not particularly well developed at this time. So there's less of a sense that, you know, uh, that the United States would want to keep the Philippines long term, especially mm-hmm. if some resources and discovered there that's worth uh, holding on to. Right at that time, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't. I mean, the Philippines was seen as having a sort of geopolitical value, right, in the sense mm-hmm. that it could be a sort of coaling or naval station for the U.S., but it didn't have the sort of raw materials or resources that Puerto Rico did in terms of sugar and you know, tobacco and things mm-hmm. like that. That's always been a, a hard thing to kind of explain uh, to both friends and students, yes. you know. Uh, they'll constantly ask, you know, so, you know, there's no oil in the Philippines or there's no sugar. Like, or so what, what was the real motivation, you know? Uh, and I, right. it's hard to kind of say because it was kind of like the, there was a potential there. There was potential to have, to have uh, resources that the U.S. didn't really, you know, know about. And 
and then as you say, the geopolitical situation. Um, I mean, we got we got what right. is it? Uh, hemp, Manila, you know, hemp, the, the Manila envelope, That's <laughs> right. the paper for that. Absolutely. There doesn't seem right. to be a lot of. I mean, there, there, yeah, there were some research, but again, I think there was this sense that you know maybe there's something if we if we you know send out these kind of uh, surveyors and find mm-hmm. some other resources, maybe it'll be of great value at a later date. But at least at, at this time in the early 20th century. You know, it was sort of minimal economic impact, mm-hmm. uh, and again, the sugar industry was, was very underdeveloped in, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, part of the reason seems to also just be this kind of uh, gung ho. You know, we need to help others spread democracy thing, uh, which sounds very familiar right. nowadays, of course, uh, but was kind of new Absolutely. back at that time. Uh, and as you point out in your first chapter, a lot of this, um, you know, proving that ourselves was done through establishing a racial hierarchy and kind of producing this the identity of the Filipino. Uh, it feels like... Right, it's kind of racial knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it feels like before this time, the people in the U.S. had no, you know, no racial uh, conception of what a Filipino person was. Uh, and so a lot of it just had to That's be produced correct. very quickly and very uh, scientifically, I guess, uh, for its own time. Yeah, and like, it's sort of... Yeah. Invented out of thin air, right? I mean, these kind of tribes and races they discover that it's not mm-hmm. clear what the definitions or what separates one group from another. It's all, it all seems completely contrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it serves this greater purpose of uh, whatever they are. They're not like us, right? They're they're definitely not white, uh, and they're definitely you know not um, sort of they don't have the raw materials to become a part of the American polity. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. How was this uh, done on the ground? Uh, you talk about surveys, um, but the surveys often just kind of buttress stereotypes, or they help produce these stereotypes as well. Uh, can you talk a bit about the the surveys and uh, how the this information was kind of made to look scientific? Yeah, well, it's essentially not unlike you know it's a much more rudimentary version of sort of census takers today, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this small team of scientists. Um, including, you know, mostly American, but they also draw on some local population to help them do things like conduct interviews or figure out how to get from point A to point B. Right? The, the Philippines is not the most easy geography to uh, to get around in, mm-hmm. um, and sort of, you know, use some of those sort of local knowledge. You know, who are these people? They are Group A, and this is Group B. Uh, what are their characteristics? Uh, and most of the people that were working with the U.S. colonial surveyors were, you know, kind of the more educated Filipinos who themselves sort of looked down on some of the rural people mm-hmm. uh, in the Philippines, and so they tended to sort of reproduce these stereotypes of these people who were very sort of uh, uncivilized and backwards, and again unworthy of right, this idea that. This Filipino agitation for independence was sort of undermined by this sort of uh, knowledge that these people just, you know, seemed like very uncivilized and very un, uh, unready for self-government. Mm. Yeah. This idea, I guess, that they were very divided people, right? That there's 70 or 80 different population groups. So this idea that the Philippines as a nation doesn't make any sense. It's, it's too many different populations of people. Uh, that don't share any sort of common national destinies. So this idea of self-government uh, can be easily dismissed by U.S. colonial officials. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that some of the more elite uh, urban Filipinos, I guess, you know, kind of went along with this Correct. because it, it put them towards the top of the hierarchy, right, uh, mm-hmm. that was established in these uh, studies. Uh, I'm curious, though, uh, just comparing this to the Spanish influence, 
And were a lot of these just kind of left behind assumptions that the Spanish had, or did the Spanish also like categorize Filipinos into distinct racial groups, or were, did they use different you know kind of language for it? Or uh, yeah, they did. They did bar. I mean, the Spanish, you know, and these were mostly you know friars and other kind of religious officials did some similar sorts of work, hmm. and there was a couple of you know, these were the old kind of uh, efforts by. You know, the ethnological scientists to try to document the people of the Philippines and mm-hmm. sort of categorize them or catalog them, kind of almost like a sort of zoological kind of uh, endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did borrow, you know, and they certainly, you know, they didn't want to go into with a blank slate, right? So they did look at what the Spanish had done and some of these other European scientists who just sort of showed up and said, oh, you're group A, you're group B, uh, you're Igorotes, you're this group, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they did that, and then they tried to sort of uh, use some of their own sort of, uh, I guess, uh, preconceptions or their own definitions of what separates one group from another. Mm-hmm. Um so it was built upon what the Spanish had done, but they also had their own sort of mm-hmm. flourishes, I guess, did, did, to sort of fit more within the, the sort of U.S. racial uh, knowledge. Did they build also on uh, like uh, British conceptions of empire and, and Malay race? Uh, I mean, you talk about how Filipinos were seen with this tendency to run amok. But I think amok came, comes from a Malay word, or it came from British dealing with Malays. I don't, mm-hmm. Were Americans like looking into how the British had categorized Malays for their how they stereotyped Filipinos? Yeah, I think they borrowed that con- the conception of running in right? this kind of irrational, mm. violent uh, episodes um, from you know sort of previous sort of uh, European kind of adventurism uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, so for sure, and a lot of the conceptions of kind of the lazy native were also drawn mm. from sort of British and Dutch sort of colonial thinking about um, the nature of sort of Malay people. Um, so, yeah, they drew on a whole series of sort of pre-existing kind of knowledge base about the people of the region and then sort of added their own sort of um, particular uh, agenda mm. to the sort of classification scheme they came up with. Um, just just a quick follow-up. I'm also curious, because uh, I've been working on the UW, University of Washington campus for so long, and we, we always mm-hmm. hear, uh, you know, Filipinos were here back in the day, and people stapled, uh, not stapled, sure. I guess, tied uh, tails, you know, to them. I mean, uh, can you talk about the, the expedition and, or the, the uh, exposition, sorry, and how Filipinos were kind of depicted when they were brought over, and as you kind of say, were put in this kind of zoological situation, yeah, so these these exhibits were, you know, almost like you would see uh, with uh, animals, right? That they were sort of uh, displayed by order of sort of level of civilization, right? So you had the uh, negritos sort of seen as the sort of uh, most uncivilized um, group in the Philippines, up to the uh, the Tagalogs, who are the sort of more advanced people, sort of centered around the sort of Manila uh, area. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, you know, of course, a whole series of kind of uh, sort of narratives at the exhibit that sort of talked about the what they saw as sort of the history of these groups and their sort of uh, capacities. And they'd have them uh, do some sort of native or tribal sort of um, dances. And some of the exhibit or some of the expositions had them do things like uh, slaughter a dog and, mm. and eat it. Um, which again sort of reinforces this notion of this kind of 
uh, uncivilized um, sort of backwards group of people uh, who were could be sort of balked at and sort of again this idea that they could be either independent like they were demanding or that they were sort of fit to become U.S. citizens was sort of uh, easily dismissed through these kind of exhibits that showed them to be um, undeserving of um, political uh, recognition. One of the uh, uh, big aha moments for me, at least, when I was reading the book, uh, is that I mean, this is also when I tell students about or talk about the uh, the Philippine American War and the you know colonization. Often, well, often, mm-hmm. you know, when when I tell them, oh, it was very difficult to figure out why they would want the, the Philippines at the time. We often have to refer then to the the labor pool that the Philippines supplied afterwards, but. It, Interesting sure. in your book that you you state that this is actually a surprise byproduct uh, that people weren't really considering the Philippines as the next big bulk of labor during the colonization and, and very few people seem to see that coming that suddenly they would replace these other um, races especially after um, you know it would be hard to foresee the 1924 act and things like that but uh, mm-hmm. in, in the beginning as you say it wasn't really uh, migrant workers. It was uh, pensionados, uh, students who came over, Navy veterans. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they also had some migrants right. going to the uh, to Hawaii. Uh, can you talk about how sure. that, that pattern of migration tended to change towards uh, towards labor and why that happened? Yeah. So early on, right, as you allude to, right, you had this very small group of, I think it was between two and 300 um, Pensionados, right? These students who were sponsored by the colonial government to come to the U.S. and go to college, and the idea was that they would take what they learned back to the Philippines and help with the sort of uh, governance uh, mm-hmm. of the islands uh, once they returned. So they'd sort of learn about American institutions and democratic government, and then they would sort of go back to the Philippines and sort of you know build uh, the Philippines up in the image of the United States. Um, it was also a, a small group of, and it's hard to get any exact numbers because this was a very transitory population of, mm. of men in the Navy, which was another colonial program to recruit um, Filipinos into the U.S. Navy um, as sort of, again, sort of colonial tutelage kind of program to teach them responsibility and military discipline. Um, and sort of randomly, some of them ended up in the U.S., right? So whatever ship they were assigned to would be in port in the U.S. somewhere, New York or San Diego, whatever. So um, some of them ended up staying in the U.S. or mm-hmm. somewhere here for short periods of time. Um, and uh, that was the bulk of the population until the sort of mid-1920s, at least in the continental U.S. Um, in the early kind of 1906, 1907 period, um, small numbers of Filipinos are recruited to work on the Hawaiian sugar plantations. Um, and largely because the population they already had working there was you know, dominated by uh, Japanese who'd become increasingly kind of militant on labor issues, trying to organize unions, uh, and Filipinos were recruited to try to break up the solidarity uh, of the Japanese. Uh, and sort of in the background at this time, there's a number of uh, sort of federal uh, le- federal laws that started to you know bar Asian immigrants first the Chinese and later mm. Japanese and other uh, East Asians. Mm. Um, so increasingly, Filipinos become sort of the go-to population mm. because they're exempted from uh, immigration quotas because they're U.S. Uh, subjects. 
Uh, and a lot of the sort of plantation owners kind of in the 19 teens, you know, felt that Filipinos were sort of well-suited to plantation work. They were small in stature. They were from a tropical climate. So they were at least perceived as sort of being well-suited with the work. And at least initially, they were also seen as very pliable or docile. Mm. Um, and that was sort of projected that, oh, they must really love this kind of work, <laughs> uh, not realizing that they just you know, were sort of biding their time until they uh, could get organized. Mm. Um and you had a pretty large population in, in Hawaii by um, the end of the 1920s. We're talking, you know, I can't remember the exact population, but certainly more than 60,000, maybe up close to 100,000. Mm. Um, right? So sort of agribusiness interests in Hawaii and the sugar industry are sort of in um, the same universe as agribusiness interests on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so the success, if you will, of, of Filipinos on the Hawaiian sugar plantations um, gives um, agribusiness leaders on the West Coast the idea, well, let's start recruiting them to work in agriculture on the West Coast, right? So you start to see this large influx of uh, Filipinos to the Pacific West Coast during the late 1920s. Um, I think by mm-hmm. 1930, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 50,000 Filipinos living uh, on the West Coast. I mean, there's some others scattered in other parts of the country, but the biggest population is in uh, the, the West Coast, in particular in California. Uh, again, the majority of them working uh, in agriculture, although a small number of them work in sort of the service industry, working as bellboys at hotels or working at restaurants as dishwashers or mm. other kind of low-level service workers. Yeah, and the story that you t- weave of uh of this migration, the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association has a big part to play, and it feels like they one of the reasons they bring Filipinos is to kind of counteract the the Japanese and Chinese workers uh, who are, seem to be getting more organized. Uh, yes. First of all, yeah, is that correct? And then was there something similar going on in the move to the West Coast, or was it just kind of like they were a new labor pool, so let's bring them, you know, wherever wherever we can. Yeah, and the first question, yes, right? So the idea was sort of divide and conquer, right? That mm. um, if you could get, um, instead of the Japanese fighting with management, you have them fighting with Filipinos and Chinese and other groups over, you know, um, over the crumbs, right? And mm-hmm. it was somewhat successful early on, but, you know, pretty quickly, again, sort of by the late 19-teens, Filipinos start kind of collaborating with Japanese on sort of labor strikes and actions, Um and it's a tenuous alliance, but it's one that uh, certainly scares the sugar planters. Mm-hmm. Um, and by, you know, again, sort of early 1920s or mid-1920s, the Filipino population surpasses the Japanese on the plantations. Right? By then you have a sort of second and third generation of Japanese, and they start moving off the plantations. Mm-hmm. Um, so the divide and conquer thing isn't quite as salient by that time. In the case of the West Coast, it's not really a sort of divide and conquer situation. It's really just um, around World War I, um, so 1917, there's the sort of creation of the Asiatic Bard Zone, like this federal legislation mm-hmm. barring immigrants from Asia. Right? So that, that pool of labor is, is done, right? You can't get any more laborers from China or from Japan. Um there's, and it sort of seems funny today, but there was a, a popular perception at that time that uh, Mexicans were not well suited for agricultural labor. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, again, this is the World War One era, right? And had not really been used in really large numbers uh, yeah. at that point. So 
there was a sort of tendency or a belief amongst sort of agribusiness leaders that Asians were better agricultural workers than Mexicans uh, and that we couldn't or that they couldn't get enough Mexicans to fill all the labor needs. Mm. Um, so Filipinos sort of fill that void right? because, again, they're exempted from these exclusionary uh, immigration laws. Um, so they're less about sort of divide and conquer, more about just filling this void of a really kind of vibrant and growing industry of agribusiness, uh, fruits and vegetables in particular on the West Coast, and just not enough people to do the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I might have interrupted you earlier when you started talking about Mexico uh, and Mexicans as as a kind of uh, comparison to the Filipinos. But uh, were they all? I and mean, was it similar with them and the Japanese? Like, were they? Uh, did they organize, and then the management had to bring in others to kind of uh, have them compete with someone, or was it a different story there? Um, it's a complicated story. I mean, for sure there were some alliances and coalitions, and at other times, right, that they didn't necessarily see their interests as aligned. Um, but during the early 1930s, there was quite a few strikes that involved both Filipinos and Mexicans. Um, and on the West Coast, you had a whole different set of sort of political groups who were active uh, in organizing. You had the traditional labor unions, but you also had the Communist Party, who had the number of front unions that were trying to organize agricultural workers. Um, so there was, you know, a fair amount of cooperation. Um, there wasn't really a, a sort of famous large-scale uh, coalition of Filipinos and, and Mexicans that mm. sort of persevered over time. It sort of happened later, I guess, with the, the UFW in the 1960s. But at this time, you know, they were all sort of fleeting uh, alliances or coalitions. Um, but certainly the, their sort of class position was very similar. So they shared, you know, the same kind of experience of exploitation. You know, there was there was significant language barriers, right? Spanish versus whatever language. You know, a lot of the Filipino immigrants either spoke Tagalog or Ilocano or Visayan. Um, so, you know, that was a challenge. Um, there was some uh, kind of anxieties about, you know, the Filipino population was overwhelmingly young men, uh, and there was some sort of um, trouble involved. You know, Filipino men dating Mexican women. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, a lot of cooperation, um, but not really sort of sustained kind of political groups that we can look back on and say, you know, these sort of longstanding alliances persevered over time. Mm. The, uh, I mean, speaking of that kind of, uh, of Filipinos and cross-racial, like, romance, I suppose, like, it seems like after the 1920s seems to be a kind of uh, turning point in how Filipinos were received. Uh, as you said, you know, they were seen at first as being kind of docile and easy to handle and English speaking, obedient. And then, and then, you know, the 1920s and later on, the, the less fr- labor friendly stereotypes start to emerge. Uh, but a lot of them relating towards sexual deviancy. And as we explained before, this kind of tendency towards violence or to run amok. Uh, I mean, was this just kind of, uh, how much right. of this was just kind of, uh, you know, labor competition? Um, and, you know, and I guess we could also talk about the miscegenation laws and uh, and how Filipinos were kind of stereotyped as um, sexually deviant. Right. Well, so the sort of nativist lobby, right, the people who were sort of at the forefront of trying to um, restrict the entry of Filipinos, um their initial efforts 
didn't weren't at all successful, right? The the federal government was not particularly interested in excluding Filipinos, and the primary reason was because international president or international convention amongst the imperialist powers was that um, colonial subjects would be granted free entry to the mother country, right? In this case, mm. Filipinos coming to the United States. Um, so at least at the federal level, um, exclusion was the non-starter, right? Because it would have made the U.S. look very petty and it would have made them look bad vis-a-vis other imperial powers. So that, that just didn't go anywhere in Congress, right? That those kinds of efforts were defeated very easily. They never even came up for a vote in Congress. Um, so they sort of shifted tactics, meaning that the Natives Coalition shifted tactics and tried to uh, use the power, I guess, of the media and sort of the public uh, culture more broadly to paint the Filipinos as a sort of race problem in the U.S., comparing them sort of negatively against you know, African-Americans with the sort of coveting white women. And they hope by, you know, portraying Filipinos as sort of sexual deviants, as a threat to the white standard of living, to white working families, that they can mobilize public support eventually to sort of force the hand of the federal government to uh, enact some sort of uh, restrictionist uh, legislation. Um, and this leads to uh, increasingly kind of um, direct action sort of tactics. Um, there's this pretty popular sentiment, and it's not unlike the sort of sentiment we see employed by natives today, that the federal government is failing to protect American citizens from these alien invaders. Uh, and if they're not going to do something to stop it, we're going to have to take the law into our own hands, right? You think mm-hmm. these kind of militia groups and the Minutemen and groups like that who try to force the hand of the government, right, by engaging these kind of direct action campaigns uh, that often morphed into very sort of violent sort of um, crusades against Filipinos, either to um, directly, you know, inflict physical violence on them or to use these sort of roundup campaigns to gather up all the Filipinos in town and put them on a train or a truck out of town and tell them, if you come back to town, you're going to be hung up in the town square, that type of stuff. (laughs) Um, So I I try in the book to underscore the, the sort of relationship between sort of extra legal agitation and public policy, right? So I I show how um, the sort of series of sort of violent campaigns directed at Filipinos in the early 20s or late 20s and early 30s uh, led to congressional hearings on the issue of Filipino immigration. Hmm. These sort of uh, experts on Filipino immigration, you know, would, would show up at these hearings and give testimony talking about all the sort of sexual deviancy that Filipinos were engaged in. Now they were stealing jobs from white workers. They were engaged in sort of excessive criminality, so on and so forth. And and this required, you know, a sort of a solution by the federal government, right? If if the white citizenry is to be protected, the federal government will have to intervene, right? And if they don't, more violence will happen, right? So it's a sort of threat of, you know, using the sort of race riots and vigilante actions against Filipinos to say it's all their fault, right? And mm-hmm. until you do something about the Filipino immigration issue, more violence uh, will ensue, and sort of you know, white women and white families are in danger uh, from this sort of deviant population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you state in the book that some of the very first anti-Filipino riots uh, were actually in Washington State. Um, probably Correct, in, in Yakima, my in Yakima. Home, hometown. 
uh, and this was also before the Great Depression, right? Before the stock market crash, which was interesting Correct. to me because that's that's always how I thought of it in my head, right? Stock market crash, turn against all the uh, mm-hmm. you know the low wage workers. But this, but a lot of it happened before that. Um, so can you talk about what prompted these riots? Uh, you know, if you're a young you know Filipino worker walking around at the time, what kind of discrimination could you expect to face on a daily basis? And uh, you know, how, just how violent were you know were the riots? Um, I would say very violent, right? They often involve, you know, baseball bats or clubs, sometimes mm. guns, uh, mm. knives. Um, in many cases, including the, the case of Yakima, where they, the first race riot that I uncovered, which was in 1927, of which my grandfather was one of the people who was rioted upon, um, had a, a sort of two supposed causes. One was, you know, that the um, Filipinos were sort of walking around with white women in, in town, you know, showing up at public events like, you know, carnivals or fairs and sort of flirting with white women. Uh, and this, you know, set off the local um, population for sort of mm. sort of violating the sort of unspoken rules of, you know, social conduct. Um, and then there was also a sort of fear that Filipinos were working for less than white workers, and this was leading to whites becoming unemployed uh, in the agriculture industry. Um, so those were the two most common explanations, and those were the same explanations were often used in other uh, examples of, of riots or vigilante campaigns. Right? Either they were stealing jobs or they were you know, engaging in sort of social deviancy by mixing with white women in public and marrying them and having kids with them and the, mm. everything else you can imagine. Mm. They couldn't, uh, there, was, was, there were some states that Filipinos could marry whites, or, or, uh, and Washington was not one of them, is that right? That is true, right? So <clears throat> California had a law barring interracial marriage of Filipinos and whites, Oregon, mm. uh, I think Utah, Nevada, mm. Uh, but Washington did not, and New Mexico did not. And that was one of the, the problems in terms of enforcing uh, the color line vis-a-vis sort of interracial marriage and sort of intimacy was that um, interracial or sort of anti-miscegenation laws were not federal statutes, right? They were state laws, right? So mm-hmm. it was relatively, I don't know if easy is the right word, but I'll use it for <laughs> brevity, uh, to circumvent the laws. You could go to New Mexico, you could go to Washington, you could actually go to the country of Mexico and get married. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that, those marriages would be recognized when you came back to your home base, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, they were difficult to enforce. And again, anti-miscegenation laws only bar interracial marriage, right? They don't bar interracial sexuality or interracial mm-hmm. cohabitation, right? So these efforts to sort of contain sort of intimacy or sexuality involving Filipinos and whites um, were not very successful, right? I mean, even if you could bar them from intermarrying, you, they could, you know, live in sin or <laughs> whatever uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, conception of interracial intimacy you want to use. Uh, and that, you know, that still um, gets these sort of nativists and these racists all agitated, right, that these people are sort of violating the unwritten rules of interracial um, sort of separation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, so the, the, the riots seem to take place mostly from the 27th to about 1934 uh, with the passing of the Tidings-McDuffie Act, um, which doesn't come right. into effect for a while, at least a decade and a couple of years afterwards. Uh, but mm-hmm. you, you, 
it's interesting that you know when I even when I look up this act on like Wikipedia or something, it's still very much put in the that discourse of oh this is a great moment for Filipinos because it, we you know we gave them independence or something. Um, and of course, you read it more as a victory for the exclusionists, but also uh, a kind of short-lived victory in some ways because the Filipinos were in the U.S. could still stay in the U.S. Uh, but can you take us through the, the passage mm-hmm. of this act? You know, how much of it was the desire for independence? How much of it was um, exclusionist groups kind of getting uh, the legal status of Filipinos changed? Uh, and then it's after effect. Yeah. Um, right. So important uh, question. Um, so, again, from the beginning, right, sort of from 1898, Filipinos had been sort of demanding, agitating for independence, uh, and that never stopped all the way through the 1930s uh, and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were constantly sort of lobbying, and, you know, they had a sort of, uh, I forgot what the term is, but they had a, an official that was, you know, in Washington, D.C. that would, you know, constantly sort of push the issue uh, in Congress uh, to no avail. Um, and the exclusionists who had been pushing for an outright exclusion law eventually gave up. They realized that was a non-starter. As long as the Philippines was a colony of the United States, Filipinos could not be excluded. Mm-hmm. Right? So they figure out, well, if it's not a colony of the United States, then they can be excluded. So they decided to sort of um, align their uh, forces with people pushing for Philippine independence, mm-hmm. both the Filipinos themselves, but also a group of sort of um, Midwestern sort of economic interests who were worried about competition from cheap Filipino products uh, and sort of formed this coalition to push for Philippine independence. Um, And in doing so, they believed, and they were correct, that um, once this law was passed that was later called the Teddy McDuffie Law, um, Filipinos would be barred from uh, migrating to the U.S. because Mm -hmm. they were uh, on the road uh, to independence. So... um, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword. On one side, um, you know, there was a, a sort of campaign that was, you know, effectuated and, you know, sort of uh, officially sanctioned to grant the Philippines its independence, which Filipinos were happy about and excited about. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it was also, you know, about the U.S. getting its independence from the Philippines, right? Mm. The <laughs> sort of economic riches that they hoped might come from the Philippines never materialized. It was becoming increasingly expensive to hold on to the Philippines, right? It was very far away. Um, there was also, I think, a recognition amongst U.S. officials that uh, Japan wanted the Philippines and that it would be difficult It would be difficult to defend the Philippines against Japan. Of course, mm-hmm. that, that issue comes to a head during World War II. Um, so the U.S. decides to cut their losses, right? There's not enough sort of payoff or benefit for holding on to it. And in fact, right, it's becoming a sort of financial drain on the U.S. and also a geopolitical hot potato, right, sort of defending mm-hmm. it from other people who coveted, other nations who coveted the Philippines. So it's both independence for the Philippines and independence from the Philippines. Right? It's not mm-hmm. one or the other, but a sort of combination of both sentiments. And then what happened to the the narrative of benevolent assimilation that I mean was part of that discourse in the in the newspapers that you read? Was it partially like we we did our job, you know, we we brought them up and now they're they're ready? Uh, you know, did that was yeah, that an issue? Not really. I mean there was that sort of benevolent assimilation, I think 
you know, by the 1920s and 30s, right, with a lot of the sort of what people knew about Filipinos was mm-hmm. was what was happening in the U.S., right, these race riots and sort of interracial mingling and all this stuff. So uh, this idea of assimilation was uh, sort of fell out of favor, right? this mm-hmm. idea that they could sort of be brought up and sort of integrated into U.S. polity in some way. Uh, that was sort of out the door. Um, so... I think, you know, by the late 30s and early 40s, right, so nowhere in World War II, the U.S. was looking for a way out. Uh, and, um, you know, one of, the, I think, the reasons that the, the Tidings-McDuffie Act had a 10-year probation period is because they weren't 100% sure that there wouldn't be something of value in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they wanted another sort of 10-year buffer just in case something materializes that's worth holding on to. Mm. Um, we have it. <laughs> that's fascinating. Um but, of course, in the middle of that 10-year probationary period, uh, Japan uh, invades uh, the Philippines and sort of occupies uh, the archipelago. Mm. Uh, and the U.S. is sort of forced to uh, try to uh, figure out a way to uh, get it back, <laughs> uh, which yeah. becomes a, a sort of complicated question in and of itself. Like the U.S., like who for many years has been saying, for decades have been saying, one of the reasons we're holding on to the Philippines and one of the reasons that we have this sort of 10-year probationary period is because you need us to protect you from all these covetous nations that want to uh, do harm to you. And I think a lot of Filipinos were sort of suspicious of that. But when uh, it came time to pay the bill and I mean, Japan did uh, rear its head in terms of its sort of imperial designs in the Philippines, mm. the U.S. was out of there very quickly within a couple of months, right? The U.S. had retreated and sent all their sort of high-level military staff uh, to other parts of Asia and Australia. So this idea of uh, we need to stay here to protect you wasn't really uh, mm. well represented when it came time to actually <laughs> protect the Philippines from uh, outside forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's move to World War II in that case. Uh, I mean, this question of why Filipinos would volunteer and then help pay for the effort much more than uh, they were expected to. Uh, it's always been interesting to me. Uh, my gran- my great grandfather fought in the First World War. Uh, he was a mm-hmm. uh, Ilocano migrant, and I was <laughs> my family is always wondering like why the hell you know why uh, that happened. Um, and was always very proud of fighting in that war. Uh, but can you illuminate a bit yeah. on on uh, at least on how that happened in the Second World War? You know why did Filipinos volunteer in such big numbers to fight uh, and to provide money uh, for the war? Um, and what were the after effects, mm-hmm. the ones that they expected, and yeah. the ones that actually happened after the war? Yeah, I think, you know, it was sort of a combination of things that led to this kind of high level of whatever patriotic uh, enthusiasm amongst Filipinos. One, it was that um, right, the Philippines is sort of on the path to independence, and all of a sudden this foreign nation, uh, not the U.S., but another foreign nation uh, intervenes and invades and occupies the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also, I think, a sense that the Japanese sort of military um, occupation was particularly brutal, particularly on the civilian population. Um, so there's a lot of sense of, you know, just the violence that goes along with the war. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, inspired a lot of people to want to fight back uh, and to defend their homeland from this um, occupying army. Uh, in the U.S., I think similar sentiments among Filipinos, right, that they were caught up both in the U.S. kind of patriotic fervor, um, sort of the free world versus these kind of uh, 
whatever the kind of fascist forces of the Nazis and Italians and uh, Japanese. Um, and they also, I think, wanted to sort of prove to their American neighbors that they were, you know, worthy of citizenship and worthy of, you know, political rights and recognition and that the best and most visible way we could do that is by sort of volunteering to serve um, mm. in a time of crisis. Um, in terms of the, the sort of benefits question, you know, the sort of after uh, effects of the war, I think a lot of Filipinos were very uh, disappointed, right? One of the provisions of the Tyson-Duffy Act allowed the, the president of the United States to um, draft uh, the Philippine Commonwealth Army into the U.S., armed forces, um, and there was a sort of set of promises that um, Filipinos who were sort of drafted in the U.S. military would get the same pay and benefits uh, as American soldiers, and after the war, the U.S. rescinded uh, on those promises, and that's been a sort of issue that's um, continued on until very recently. Right? For decades, Filipinos were sort of uh, lobbying to get sort of the full rights and recognition that were promised to them during the war, both in terms of benefits and, and back pay, but also um, one of the um, sort of provisions that was enacted during World War II was that um, non-citizen uh, soldiers would be eligible for U.S. citizenship by virtue of their service, mm -hmm. uh, and that was also sort of... Uh, reneged upon by the U.S. government by basically uh, not allowing any U.S. officials to naturalize Filipinos in the Philippines, right? So technically they were eligible. They just didn't have the the means to actually apply for naturalization, right? And a lot of Filipinos, like a lot of minorities today, right, saw military service as a route to social mobility, like a steady paycheck, um, certain sort of political and health uh, benefits that might uh, accrue for military service. Um, so I think in the case of the Philippines, many people saw military service, again, as sort of a, a, a way to achieve a certain level of social status and, again, a regular paycheck and relatively decent benefits and, again, some political payoff in terms of you mm. know, potential for uh, citizenship and all the good things that came with that as well. So was that issue resolved recently? You said that it, it was a big issue until recently. Has, has, has something happened with that uh, desire for... Uh... Yeah, there's been a series of bills that have been enacted that have given little bits and pieces of um, uh, benefits to Filipino veterans. I mean, one way to read the story, and this is probably the cynical way, although it's the way I read it, is that mm. um, these bills, which are you know, dating back to the 1970s, efforts to sort of, again, uh, for the U.S. to deliver on its promises of equal pay and benefits um, and health care and all that stuff that goes to veterans. Um, and those efforts were repeatedly shot down. Right? They never made very much progress in Congress, even though you know, all these veterans testifying, as well as the U.S. military officials saying that it was an injustice. Hmm. Um, and then in the late sort of, you know, post-2005, I think around 2008-2009, you started to see um, some um, movement with, again, sort of extending certain benefits to Filipino veterans. And one way to read that, and again, this is from my own reading, is that the only reason it made progress at that time was because almost all the Filipino veterans were dead. Mm -hmm. So there was yeah. very little sort of liability for the U.S. to deliver on medical benefits, you know, 
for these people who are uh, there's very few of them left around or the ones that were around were quite old and frail so um i think you know it was an easy way for the u.s to sort of save face without actually having to uh pay out mm. the, what was due in terms of um the sort of monetary and uh sort of political uh, costs of uh, compensating these veterans so as we're moving to the to talking about the contemporary period, I, I am curious how, uh, like, when you were writing the book uh, as well, how you thought of this history in the context of the Philippines now and, and labor pools coming from the Philippines now going all, you know, not just to the U.S. anymore, but all over the world. Uh, you know, how do we read this history in the context of domestic work, service labor, uh, where Filipinos are, you know, as a, uh, as we've been talking about, as the kind of servants of globalization, you know, from the kind of labor pools of the U.S. to this, the kind of globalization uh, labor pool? Yeah, I mean, I think the phenomenon that we now think of this kind of post-65 immigration is really sort of rooted in the, the pre-65 era, hmm. right? So a lot of this, you know, the sort of colonial education programs that sort of instituted English as the official language in the Philippine school system early on, um, sort of the the replication of the U.S. sort of school system in the Philippines early on sort of um, created this sort of ready-made workforce, right? They spoke English. They were sort of trained in sort of the American style of education. Mm. Um, and that happened uh, sort of early on, sort of part of the sort of colonial programming in the islands. Um, there are a lot of similarities between sort of pre-65 and post-65 immigration, uh, but also important differences, right? The pre-65 population was almost exclusively men, Mm. Uh, the post-65 population is dominated by women, although there are still men coming. Um, I think you know, 60 or 70 percent have been uh, women. Um, and I think you know, certainly there's a lot more professional immigrants than there were during the period I studied in my book. Mm. Nurses and doctors and other kinds of um, professional workers, although you also have service workers. Um, whereas you know, pre-65 was almost exclusively manual labor kind of immigration. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I touch on in the book is the, the remittance system that you know, gets a lot of attention today was actually started uh, early on in Hawaii, right? The sort of mm. transfer of you know money earned abroad to uh, families back home really takes off. And I think I'm forgetting the actual figures, but something like you know five million dollars every year was going to the Philippines even in you know nineteen you know thirteen or something. So uh -huh. uh, it's much larger now, but that kind of that system of remittances, right? This kind of transfer of money through international wire services actually began um, very early and you know sort of snowballed from there, becoming the sort of massive institution that it is uh, today. Yeah. Um... Okay, well, Rick, we've taken up a lot of your time. Are you uh, working on any new research now? I am. I'm doing a, working on a new book this year on the 1965 Immigration Act, uh, looking mm -hmm. at that uh, historic piece of legislation against the backdrop of kind of Cold War politics mm -hmm. uh, and domestic civil rights mobilization. Um, so less sort of rooted in Asian American studies and a more sort of broader exploration of immigration policy and citizenship policy. And looking at a period, you know, sort of Cold War civil rights era that I think uh, should get more attention. Um, so I'm mm -hmm. excited about it. Um, the Philippines does, you know, have a role in the book, although, again, it's much a broader kind of project. So mm -hmm. working on that right now and hoping, 
to have a draft of the book done in the next kind of year and a half or so. These things uh, don't come easily, no. <laughs> uh, but making good progress. I'm, I'm on sabbatical this year, so it's been good to get some momentum going and doing some archival work, and uh, it's exciting. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. We took more time than usual, but so I want to thank you for sticking around uh, for this long. I really, I, I really enjoyed our in-depth conversation. I think I've told you before I've used your book in my own work, um, my own articles quite extensively. So I've feel I'm even more familiar with it now, uh, more than I thought I was before. So thank you so much for coming by. Yeah, thank you. It was a great conversation. Great website, too. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to my interview with Rick Baldoz on his book, The Third Asiatic Invasion. If you enjoyed this interview, I also suggest the interview with Nathaniel Millett on his book, The Maroons of Prospect Bluff and Their Quest for Freedom in the Atlantic World, which is about how free African-Americans escaped slaves and Afro-Indians created a thriving, highly organized community in the shadow of the expanding slave empire of the southwestern United States during and after the War of 1812. You can find this interview on the New Books in American Studies podcast. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.